My name is Nate Mickle. You're listening to Mickles and Dimes Layer 2, where every interview is dedicated to the simple, the practical, and the underappreciated. Jess Sternod, Stanford law professor and psychotherapist, teaches courses on mental health law, game theory, Bayesian statistics, cryptocurrency, securities, taxation, and finance law. Before joining Stanford Law School, Jeff was a professor of law and economics at the California Institute of Technology. Jeff received an undergraduate degree from Harvard, a law degree from Yale, and a PhD in economics from Yale. I hope you enjoy learning from Jess Sternod today, because I always do. Well, Jeff, it's so great to connect with you again today. My last year of law school, I took your class, Myth, Law, and Practice, and I got this line from the syllabus. This course examines both collective myths, which capture relevant archetypal human tendencies, and the personal myths, along with the associated histories of individual lawyers. Now, when I went to law school, I never expected to take a class like that, but I have to say it was one of my favorites, so it's great to be able to connect with you again today. That's great. We didn't change the class much, but we changed the title. It's still, it, So now it's Psychological Development psychological development colon myth law and practice so okay it just was a little too weird to have law transcripts with myth law and practice <laughs> well i have to say you know as a kid i was never one of those students that appreciated greek mythology yeah. i just thought it was a complete waste of time yeah. and taking your class i just saw like oh okay it, it just like removed the blinders like there's a ton of wisdom here yeah. I just didn't do, I didn't appreciate it. So that that's one takeaway of many um, that I have from your class. But anyway, um, as I was thinking about this podcast and, you know, I'm trying to interview people who have impacted me and people who are interesting. And uh, you are one of those people that has impacted me and, and is certainly interesting uh, because you teach a class like myth law and practice at a law school. And that's just kind of the tip of the iceberg. Um as you think back on your career as an academic, your research, things you've learned, are there any lessons that you would most like to pass along to future generations? Yeah, that's a big question. And one one thing I do is go back to the class and what are some of the big insights, which I think are major insights for both social and personal, on both social and personal levels. So one is, um, is the in some sense the separation of people is an illusion because there's this huge influence largely unconscious that starts at birth between individuals and as you and i are talking now uh even though we're not even in the same place we're talking by zoom there's like ten thousand unconscious signals going back and forth um between us all mammals have a limbic system that's unconscious and it's picking up all these signals and we have big influence on each other bigger than we think. And the, and separation is a very useful illusion, especially in law, we people have identities, right? Uh, but there's a lot more interconnectedness between people than we think. Um, and it's in the course, I had the general theory of love, which describes that in a developmental, it's a book that describes that in a developmental sense, how, how critically important that human connection is for infants, but it's critically important for anyone. That's one thing. The second thing is that influence propagates itself into the future. Okay. So you and I are talking today. 
we're going to have an influence on each other. Um, maybe we'll leave with some kindness in our heart, kindness in our interaction and kindness in our heart. And that's going to go forward even after we're dead. It's going to, you're going to talk to people today later. I'm going to talk to them. We have our families. We have our, our classes. We have our, where we work. Um, all that propagates forward indefinitely. Um, and so that's another element. And the interesting thing about that element is that um, it doesn't it's it, it doesn't have a name attached to it. It's the legacy of each human being that has no name attached to it. They're not going to know that it's Nate or Jeff. There's going to be some kindness that flows for it, or conversely, some you know some kind of roughness. And that's not going to have our name attached to it. Um, and one um, one person, one of my uh, extended colleagues. Irv Yalom, who's a psycho psychoanalyst, psychotherapist, uh, he wrote he writes on things like this, and he 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 loves the the movie Ikuru, which is a 1952 movie, 100 Rotten Tomatoes rating, uh, which makes this point. Uh, it's about a Japanese man who develops cancer, and so he's thinking about his how things go forward, and all I'll say is it goes forward in an unacknowledged way. Uh, I don't want to spoil the movie. Okay. So those are two big things. And those apply both personally and socially. So the small interactions you have every day have a big social influence that you influence other people and it flows forward in time. And this sounds a little new agey, but it's straight neuroscience. It's straight science. Uh, that's why I assigned the general theory of love, which is written by neuroscientists. So um, those are two big things. Uh, and then, you know, we're having that in mind, it tends to make us a little more careful what we're doing during the day, how we interact with other people, because it has this effect. And, you know, especially so with people we're close to, but also other people. Um, another big lesson that's in the class that um, we, it, mythologically or Jungian-wise, it's the shadow is the idea that there's this kind of, unconscious part of ourselves and since you took the course i've added a big uh, kind of scientific component to that mostly like psychological studies and stuff and one thing and this is kind of obvious to <laughs> in the current day but at a drop of a hat we can create an experiment and we can we can induce people to form groups unconscious basically largely unconsciously and attribute negative qualities to other groups we can do there's these these are frightening experiments and these are like completely normal subjects these are not like political nuts that we're talking about okay we're not talking about political experiments we're just talking about normal people we can um you know studies go like this like we'll we'll create a we have a group um we'll claim that we were doing psychological tests and we'll claim that there's a test result that says they have a certain negative trait and then we have we have an experimental context in which we induce them not to think about that trait. Then we show them a movie of another group, and they attribute that trait to the group, that negative trait, to the other group, okay? Even though there's no ostensible reason for them to do that. There's all these experiments like that. And it's stunning, okay, how, how quickly, like, group identities can emerge amongst people. And we see it all the time. Like when I was doing my internship for B 
being a psychotherapist, I did it in in San Jose and Santa Clara, and I worked in a youth uh, youth uh, shelter, twelve to eighteen year olds who couldn't live at home. And one thing I had to deal with all the time is the Nortenos and the Sedanos gangs. Nor what is what distinguishes them? Is some major substantive thing like politics? No, Norteno is North San Jose and Sedano mm -hmm. South San Jose. But this is, you know, there's a danger of violence. We're talking about kids that are like 14 years old based on this. It's like the Red Sox Yankees or the, I don't know what, you know, it's like, it's just amazing how powerful and dangerous this is. And obviously in our own country right now, it's kind of obvious that we we face a lot of dangers based on this. And that's another really important thing to keep in mind. And how can we deal with that? Well, the first place to deal with that is in ourselves. Is look at look at what our what are our group identifications? Is there some darkness of our own group that we're hiding? It almost always is true. Uh, you know, it is comical on the political sphere, like the people you know attack each other for the very thing, same things that they're doing. And you know, it's just it's it's and also on the international level, you know. So that's three big things. The fourth thing that I'd put in that it was not in the course is the second law of thermodynamics. What does that say? Entropy disorder in that always increases. And one, one thing we see about our own lives, our country, our school, is it doesn't last. It's, it disintegrates. And ultimately, if... Um, uh, James Hillman, who's a famous kind of neo Jungian scholar, he said he he said it's 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 amazing that um, people have picked up the so-called scientific myth, the idea that yeah the universe started a big bang, it's going to end in the second law of thermodynamics, everything is going to be completely you know little warm, a little bit warm particles disorganized, <laughs> but. But there's but but we don't have to go to that dark place. We can just it's just it's just acknowledging death, death of ourselves, death of our of our ideas, death of our hopes. Uh, those all those deaths we're going to face. Our country is not going to last well, forever. We kind of feel like it it will, but it won't. Um, and you know it might even be that now we have like you know you know the singularity book, which I think is a really important book. Maybe we won't last for it. Maybe we won't be. Maybe the, you know, Homo sapiens is it's over. Maybe it's over, because I mean, the singularity argument is a very powerful argument. The argument's very simple. Um, the singularity point that he defines in his book is where we can take a human mind and encompass it in a thousand-dollar laptop. Okay, and what happens then? Well, we have the same human mind, but now it runs one million times faster. Okay, so what does that mean? That means 30 seconds in 30 seconds of actual time, I can do a whole year. So I can get my PhD two and a half minutes in anything. Well, it might take me three and a half minutes in some subjects. Okay, but that's what we're talking about. So what happens then? Well, not all your beans are obsolete as far as economics and everything else goes. And then what happens? So you know, so that's something that we're that, you know, this is a little bit, you know, this is not chat GBT. Chat GBT is a really crude, yeah. you know, large language model. But, you know, that's that's sitting there. And, you know, there's a significant chance that 50 or 100 years from now, 
it, it'll be over as far as as um, a nor, a, an unenhanced human being being having a useful, you know, having a useful economic role. Um, so I don't know. So that's, that's that that so there's an end to the human species too, and we you know it's just an, it's a, it's a good thing to have in mind. It's it, having that having that in mind helps us live our life better, helps us enjoy, helps us appreciate things better. It changes our value system, and it and to some extent it avoids getting into all these identity things, where I see my country, it has good things, it has bad things. Maybe I'll try to fix some of the bad things, but I know it's not the, you know, this there's nothing, <laughs> there's no existential struggle because everything is going to eventually fail. <laughs> it's only a place, which creates a freedom to act as a moral person and as a as a human being. So obviously we could go for hours and days and months like we did in your class. I, I there's so many directions we could go. Um, I did want to mention that the 13th episode I recorded is titled The Singularity, and I did my dissertation on um, why I think we're prone to underestimate AI, and it's because of Ray Kurzweil's book, The Singularity, and it's basically, I mean, if anybody's read Ray Kurzweil's book, they read my dissertation, they're like, oh, he's a Kurzweilian. <laughs> he's just talking about some of these, you know, he's just applying it in terms of why we're going to underestimate AI. And so, yeah, he's a 2045 now, who knows what date the singularity hits or if it does, but if things just progress on the path they're going, you know, that book to me was just one of the most kind of mind blowing, like, oh yeah, this is a real possibility that's out there potentially in our lifetime. Yeah. I agree with you. Uh, I'm going to go look at your, uh, I'll find that lecture. Yeah, I'll, I'll send it to you. So how did you get interested in this? What, what, not, not every law professor, very few law professors are interested. I mean, they're interested in maybe some of these things, but not to this level. So what is it about you or uh, when did you really start thinking about these things deeply? I don't know. That's a difficult, I mean, um, uh, you know, I, I was always interested in psychology, even though I was a physics major in college. Um, but I kind of wanted to be a psychiatrist. And back in those days, psychiatrists were psychotherapists. They didn't do as many drugs, drug kind of <laughs> things. Um, um, I was always interested in a lot of things. Uh, I, I was not a big, uh, well, you know, we had the psychedelic movement in the 1960s. when I, I graduated from high school in 1970. Uh, there's all this idealism there. Now it's coming back to some degree. Uh, there's also a lot of, uh, our generation saw a lot of dangers, which are, I think, a little bit underemphasized. Um, you know, but use of, use of psychedelics and therapy is becoming a, a big thing. Um, and quite clearly, some of it is successful. I see that now I'm going off on a little tangent. That's okay. You know, basically, um, well, I mean, I, I guess one story that I can tell you is, uh, was Larry Kramer Dean when you were there? Yeah. Okay. So here's the story. So I was a <clears throat> chair of the Joint Degree Committee. So that, that's putting together degrees with law where you could do two different degrees. Mm -hmm. And we it, we shortened the time. And so we it, it, the new Stanford is a great university, but it's very bureaucratic. And to get these joint degrees approved, you had to go to these uh, big meetings with you know, top administrators. And we were at one of those meetings and they were, Larry and I were, were there. 
and they were grilling us on what's going on. And and I, I made the point that they said, why can't people just sign up when they first apply for both programs? And I said, well, it's because many people uh, come to state law school and then they just then they discover that they have this other interest. And so then they, they we can't do it that way. And then Larry put his hand on my shoulder and he said, some people at 50 years old are still in that situation. There's <laughs> in a lot of things. I guess that that's what it is. And I've always read a lot of different things. And uh, I don't know, but that just, you know, just kind of, the, and then that course just came together, partly from, you know, I went to a therapy school that was, even though I have a science background, kind of a hard science approach and my scholarship is that way. I went to a school that was very humanities, neo-Jungian, it all these, like a lot of the myth things come from the things I learned in the school, you know, and I love that. It was really fun. And, you know, we all would like to have, this relates to singularity a little bit too. We'd all like to have N lifetimes that are simultaneous where N is quite a large number. And we become even large, larger after we implemented some of our alternative, you know, life paths. And, you know, that's part of the, part of the, the thing about finitude, you know, is that it can't do that. I only have one. We only have one life and only one, only one path. And so that's, there's a certain sadness in that. And, you know, the myth there is the classic myth from, um, of the descent of spirit. The spirit is, the spirit is up in heaven and it comes down and it embodies and the embodiment creates limitation. But in some of the myths, they send an angel down to remind you of who you are, this true, this actual spirit that's now, you know, now, now it's kind of demonstrating its inside limitations. And, you know, limitations, like in law school, we always talk, we talked about this. And the second, there was a second class called Alchemy Law and Practice. I don't think, I don't know if we had it when you were there. No, I don't think so. Now it's called Career Development, colon, Alchemy Law and Practice. <laughs> and in, in that class, we looked at um, ideas of kind of development of your life and career. And so some of these the ideas like this one, which is, and, you know, it's for law students, they're third year law students, and there's all these limitations. This is another big thing that happens to us throughout life. I have to decide to go to a certain city to practice. I have to rule out the other ones. I'm gradually getting more and more kind of limited. In some sense, I'm making choices that are ruling out these other possibilities. And that's just part of living. And then everything gets that we all know this, it becomes, you know, who my friends, who, who my friends are, what direction I go, it's all influenced by all these decisions. And I'm going down this path. In um, economics, we would, in, in math, we would call this a filtration. It's a filtration is like a set of events and it gets larger and larger, the different possible paths. Um, it's a measure theory concept. Did you ever get into stoicism? Because part of the, what you're talking about in terms of, you know, being aware of our own mortality and, um, you know, that reminded me of negative visualization and stoicism. And so just curious. Yeah, I mean, stoicism is, a, you know, it's CBT on steroids, basically. Interesting. I have never thought of that. But that you say that and I'm like, oh, my gosh, you're right. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of, I, you know, there's a lot of good stuff on, you know, there's like Ron Halliday's book, The Obstacles Away. Huh? Yeah, that's a, a good popular book. And of course, you can read the, you know, the um, Marcus Aurelius and all the basic things. Right. It's a very powerful um, set of ideas. One that I think is really valuable today 
for Generation Z. This is just now. This is okay, Boomer. Okay, like I'm. I'm <laughs> uh, this is like kind of the kind of thing that. But you know, Generation Z kind of like the there's a kind of lack of security feeling. You know, from what the description and from my experience, a lack of it's kind of a tragedy. It's kind of like there's a lack of of solidness. And there's a kind of fragility. And, you know, there's all these books that talk about this of uh, different mm -hmm. kinds. Um, and stoicism is like the re response is like the, if you want to like, if you want to go to something that addresses that directly, stoicism does that. It's it, stoicism is anti-fragility in some sense. Because why? Because it's saying, okay, yeah, all these things happen, uh, including things like really bad things like discrimination. Are you going to stay in that? Um, even though it's a bad thing, you might fight against it on a social justice level, but on an individual level, are you going to be stuck in that? And the stoic, stoic thing would be, no, I'm not going to be stuck in that. I'm going to accept my circumstances and I'm going to move forward. And that's a really, really healthy psychological place to be. Um, so in that sense, stoicism has this you know, is this has the psychological meaning, at, at least to me, it does. So this is a kind of infantile, probably, but the way I've thought about this is back when I was a kid, video games were high stakes because you'd play for a long time, but you only got three or four lives. And if you died, you died. And that mm -hmm. was it. And now video games is just, you know, as long as you put in the time, you'll pass the game, you know, at least in the, you know, on track um, platform games. But I was thinking of that in terms of life, like the worst thing we can imagine, assuming the best thing of life is, you know, the love and connection we have to humans. Well, the worst thing then that can happen is losing that connection and it will happen. Yeah. Basically take the worst thing you can possibly imagine and it's going to happen to you at some point or to those that you love. And so I love this idea of stoicism is cognitive behavioral therapy on steroids because it helps you deal with that. Yeah. It's because it's kind of the argument for that is that socialism emphasizes reality. Yeah. It, you know, there's all these, there's a, a psychoanalyst um, that I studied under for some of my, you know, I have all this training in different therapy techniques. And, you know, there's this idea, okay, uh, you know, I, I've tried to go up against reality and I've lost every time. Wow. <laughs> You know, so I'd, I'd like to have my own idea be what the universe is, but it's yeah. not. Yeah. And um, Stoicism emphasizes that here's the reality of who I am. Here's the reality of my past. Can't do anything about it. Um, I can accept it and, and then gain strength by standing in their acceptance uh, and not being caught up with it. You know, not being caught up with uh, being a victim of my past, yeah, you know, uh, and then that—that's the the thing that is most likely to help me in the future to to live a full life. And a full life means it's another place where here's another big thing. And this happens in therapy. So people come into therapy, and they have the idea: well, there's all these negative emotions like sadness, anger. Well, the reality is those are all important players. Like anger is what happens when something's not okay. Your limbic system produces energy. It's all just energy for you to do something about it. And if, if as long as it's not mixed up with anxiety, mixed up with anxiety, then you might do some impulsive thing. 
But as long as you get rid of the anxiety, the anger is a really important emotion. In fact, if you don't have anger, you are not functional at all. You have to live in an institution. You can't take care of yourself. Sadness is the same thing. And the opposite of depression, the opposite of being in a bad state is aliveness. But aliveness means you're going to have a full experience of life. It's going to include sadness. It's going to include yeah. all kinds of things. And that's the best you can, there's an argument that's the best, that's the best you can do. And how does that relate to stoicism? Stoicism is kind of cognitive, but um, it, it's kind of the same idea, you know, is that like the best I can do is live um, fully alive life. Um, and that's what I think people like Marcus really saying that's what they were, that was their goal. You know, I live a fully alive life. I have a certain role um, that I choose and I play that role to the hilt and that's it. Uh, and I experience all the feelings and that's what happens. Can I ask you one more question? Have you spent any time on Buddhism? Um, I did when I was young. I I grew up in a, I, I have a unusual background of, I grew up in a Unitarian church in the late 1960s. I remember that. I remember that from our discussions. And, you know, that had this, all this openness and it had a lot of experimental mistakes of that affected people's lives in the late 1960s. But I also got, I also did like transcendental meditation. I studied under Maharishi, although I chose not to be a teacher because uh, I didn't like the movement. I didn't like that. That's what he called it. I didn't like what it was like, but you know, that, that was, that was more Hinduism, but, but I read a lot of books mostly. I don't, I don't have a, a practicing, I, mean, I do meditation, but, uh, I, you know, I don't have a practicing Buddhist background. I also did. I also, I've done a lot of different things on the religious front. And then, um, I, I, when I was, I was in training, when I went to, um, therapy school and yet in training you do these all these therapies with other therapists and one therapist said the reason you're going to this school this neo-jungian school is to figure out your spiritual beliefs hmm. and i thought uh oh yeah it kind of hit me you know yeah <laughs> there's all these things how do we you know how do we think about them yeah so. Well, I read Jack Cornfield's The Wise Heart. I haven't spent a lot of time on Buddhism, but Jack Cornfield's book uh, was just awesome to me, which actually reminds me, the person who introduced me to Ray Kurzweil's book, The Singularity, is also the one who introduced me to Jack Cornfield, uh, Wise Heart and Buddhism. It's my PhD advisor, Brian Bonner from the University yeah. of Utah. So anyway, well, I've taken more of your time than I asked for, and this has just been so fun for me to connect and hear these thoughts. And I look forward already to listening to this episode again. It's been fun for me to go back through some of the papers I wrote for your class, some of my reflection papers. And uh, I I want to learn more about your work. And, and you said your LinkedIn bio is maybe one of the best places for that. Uh, yeah. But your, your work is varied. I mean, the, this, this myth and law is just a, a very small part. Uh, we got a taste of some of your interests today, but I, I just want to say thank you. This has been so fun for me to connect and just appreciate you spending time. I'm very fortunate to have you as a student. And so I'm, I'm, and I'm grateful that we were able to reconnect here.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Mickles and Dimes. I love the lessons that Jeff shared today. First, in some sense, the separation of people is an illusion. We have a bigger influence on people than we often appreciate. There are some 10,000 unconscious signals going back and forth between people when we communicate, making us more interconnected than we realize, which leads to the second lesson. Our impact on one another propagates itself into the future, for either good or bad. Remembering that our behavior impacts the world indefinitely will hopefully help us be kinder and more careful. Third, beware of the Jungian shadow. We can so quickly and unconsciously attribute negative group identities to others, for example, just by living in South San Jose compared to North San Jose. Our group identities can be so powerful and dangerous, so it's important that we examine them for darkness. Fourth, the second law of thermodynamics establishes the concept of entropy, in which everything declines into disorder, including schools, countries, and even people. But we don't have to go to a dark place. Acknowledging the eventual death of our ideas, our hopes, and even ourselves can help us enjoy and appreciate things more, improve our value system, and help us avoid negative group identities. In summary, we're interconnected beyond belief and we should embrace the inevitable. Both simple ideas, please take them seriously. Nate Mickle here with three requests and one suggestion. First, if you would like a quick summary of these lessons delivered to your inbox, sign up for Nate's notes at natemickle.com. Second, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with others. Third, if you'd give this podcast a five-star review on Apple iTunes, I would really appreciate it. And now a suggestion. If you're like me and want to remember all of the lessons shared in previous episodes, visit the list of lessons page on my website, natemickle.com, to see all of the lessons that previous guests have shared. Thanks for your support.